Welcome to Rumble Strip. With the shags, the first listen is the hardest. It doesn't make sense. You listen to this music and it literally makes no sense. You keep thinking, I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to figure out how the melody is organized or something. Otherwise, it just feels like an assault of random notes. To be generous, their voices are um, not professional. Their musicianship is not particularly professional. And then after listening a few times, there was this switch. This music just seems like you're peering into someone's soul. And I began listening to their music obsessively. This is Erica. Until about eight months ago, I think I pretended I knew the music of the Shags, but I didn't know the Shags. I'm Dorothy May Wiggin Semprini. Um, I was leader of the band, and I played the melody on the songs and wrote the most of them. I'm Betty Wiggin Porter, and I played rhythm in the Shags. The Shags were three girls from New Hampshire, sisters. And in the late 60s, their father pretty much forced them to start a rock band. I think his main wish was making his mother's dream come true, which became his dream. Yeah, that was his big dream. Yep. He got it. Too late for him, but he got it. (laughs) Day after day, they practiced in their living room using instruments you can buy at Kmart. They had no musical background. They weren't even all that interested in music. And the results were this. The Shags were forgotten until their album was re-released, and then it sort of took off. Frank Zappa loved them. Kurt Cobain loved them. Jazz musician Carla Blay said, they bring my mind to a complete halt. And then everyone wanted to learn their story does get a little, what's the word I want, tiring, I guess, after a while, but I don't mind. Today, a special edition of Rumble Strip, a show I produced with Susan Orlean of The New Yorker and Nick White and Mike Dodge Weisskopf of KCRW for the series Lost Notes. Susan Orlean met the Shags back in the late 90s, and her article about the band brought even more attention to the sisters, maybe more attention than they wanted. I had heard about the Shags, thought it was a great story, made arrangements to meet with them, jumped in my car with a Shags CD in my CD player, and headed up the freeway. I hadn't spent time in Fremont. A very small town, kind of quiet. Wasn't a whole lot going on for kids or just school, and I guess you could say normal. Same old stuff that you get usually... You know, any growing up anywhere. We did have horses and animals and things. It didn't feel like a place in time. It, it was a place that created its own time. 
It had been a mill town, and like a lot of the mill towns in places like Vermont and western Massachusetts, it had seen better days. The first time I met with the sisters was at a Dunkin' Donuts at a very tiny town right next to Fremont. The Haven, wasn't it? I think it was, yeah. yeah. Asked a lot of questions, we answered them. Well, the same old, same old story, but um, she seemed nice. They walked me over to my car, and this was Dot and Betty. And I, I turned on my car, I got in, turned on the ignition, and what came blasting out over my sound system was Philosophy of the World by the Shags. But what surprised me was how almost unfamiliar they were with it at that point. I never really cared for it myself, so it just, I'm very negative on it, you know. You can Betty hadn't listened to it for years. She said she didn't really want to listen to it. The idea that they had compartmentalized it. Just not part of us right now. It's like another life that was, that was then, this is now. So kind of feels like somebody else. Despite the fact that the record was suddenly being embraced by a lot of music lovers. From what they tell us, it's the, the story behind it and the honesty of the... Uh, Songs, kind of surprising, so. They call it like the innocence of it, too. But it was a part of their life that was over. They were living their lives, working-class people in a small town. Austin Wiggin was a very dominant character in the family and probably a very domineering character as well. He was a laborer. He worked at a manufacturing um, company in Exeter, which is like 11 miles from Fremont. Strict, old-fashioned. He was strict and old-fashioned, but he was kind of, I'd say mellow on the outside, but very tough inside, you know what I mean? He got what he wanted, usually. He was the word of law in the house, and a person who was ruled pretty powerfully by superstition. His mother also was very committed to the idea of fate, and she was a palm reader. And when he was about 17, read his palm and gave his fortune, I guess you could call it. First of all, she told him he was going to marry a woman with strawberry blonde hair, which he did. She predicted that he would have two sons and in fact, he did. And she also said that he would have daughters and they would be in a rock band. This haunted Austin. They were pretty shocked when Austin just announced to them one day that they were forming a band, that they were no longer going to attend school. They would be homeschooled. Through the mail, so that we would have time to study music as well. The fact of the matter is he had daughters who had no interest in music, no particular talent for music. There was nothing about who they were as individuals that screamed rock band. The 
The Shags were Helen, Betty, and Dot Wiggin. Helen was the oldest, Dot was in the middle, and Betty the youngest. They all had long blonde hair. Sweet, soft-faced girls who uh, looked like they kind of hid in the back of the room more than racing to the front of the stage. Sometimes I feel funny and bothered up inside. Then for some reason, I just got to cry. Sometimes I feel happy and overflowing with joy. Then things change and I start to worry. The girls were spending almost all day, every day, practicing. He just knew the sound he was looking for and would do one song over numerous times when we practiced until it was right to him. And when they weren't practicing, they were doing calisthenics, which for some reason Austin believed was the perfect counterpoint to playing instruments. I mean, to this day, I don't know whether he thought, well, you're going to be on stage, you should be in shape, or whether it was just about rigor. I mean, he really had no music background either, so... Except for um, he liked... um, Patula, Patula Clock. And he liked her and he liked the Supremes. I think his main wish was making his mother's dream or mother's fortune telling come true, which became his dream. I think it was more that than anything else. Yeah, because he didn't really care what other people thought, especially of him. You know, it's just, but we were his girls and that's what was to be. His wife, Annie, was strawberry blonde, uh, slight, and really deferred to his opinion and to his choices. They were a family of very modest means. There was seven of us all together, so yeah, we had we struggled. They didn't have the money to spare, buying musical instruments, but Austin couldn't be budged. And as soon as they were ready or Arguably, before they were ready, he began insisting that they perform live in public. The first time the Shags played, the band had really just been formed. It was in Exeter, a small town near Fremont. The girls were very reluctant to go, but true to Austin's form, he believed they were ready, and that's all there was to it. They were at that point still learning how to play their instruments. They began not with one of their own songs, but a a popular country song called Wheels. Shortly after they launched into the song, people in the audience apparently took umbrage at their talent or lack of talent. I know, I'm sure some of them probably booed at a couple of the songs and some kids threw some soda cans or something up on the stage and my father took the microphone and took care of that. So it only happened once. (laughs) You know, it's not easy being a a 13-year-old girl. Your self-consciousness, your concern about your appearance, your desire to be accepted, all of that is probably in its fullest bloom of any time in your entire life. To be on a stage somewhat against your will, playing instruments and believing you don't really know how to play them yet, 
singing songs you've written that you're not quite sure that they're good songs and having your father glaring at you and insisting that you go on it it does break your heart a little imagining how deeply mortifying and and painful that must have been for them parents do understand parents do care we must We kind of didn't have too much of a chance to be rebellious. We were always home after we got out of elementary school. There wasn't a lot to do in Fremont, and certainly not a lot of nightlife. Well, sometimes we went out, made sure we were home before he got home from work. We'd go swimming at a lake and be home in time. If our hair was wet at one time, we said we just shampooed it. That's the most we did, I think, was once swimming. Sometimes you rode the horse when you weren't supposed to in the wintertime. Oh, yeah, that's true. I really wanted to understand the context in which the Shags grew up and in which their music was made. Fortunately, Fremont has a town historian, uh, a man named Matthew Thomas. I've lived here since 1960. Who is very smart and very devoted to documenting the history of, of this small town. Um. This town was very well related. We had a lot of large families that that intermarried, and so we were really one big large extended family in many respects. Um, and they, they looked out for each other. They really did. Um, one thing that I was especially proud of of this town until 2014 was out of 37 towns and cities in Rockingham County, we were the last town to have a murder. So we were sorry that that happened, but... With the amount of growth that's happened in southern New Hampshire, it was bound to happen sooner or later. Uh, So you couldn't ask for a better town to live in, to be honest with you. At some point, the town decided to use their town hall, which was a very, very pretty building, very well suited to performances, to use it as a venue for entertainment. Austin arranged for the Shags to play at those Saturday nights the town hall. Every Saturday night, um, and for all ages, it was like a family thing. Though the parents didn't come, it was like a drop-off for the parents. They dropped the kids off, all ages, 10 years up to teenagers. They had a, there was nothing else going on in town, so it got the kids off the street. Um, they had a good time for the most part. I remember going to one in December of 1972, and I was with my friends, and the whole reason I really went was not because I wanted to see them play, but because it was where the kids were hanging out, It was something different for us teenagers to do. The entire family participated in the town hall shows. Um, The older of the two boys in the family, Austin III, played maracas. Uh, The other son, Robert, played tambourine and occasionally played the drums. Annie, the mom, sold tickets, ran a refreshment stand. Everybody was involved. It was a family affair. And 
that went on for quite a while. It became a, a regular Saturday night activity in Fremont. We had fun at the dances. It was fun to watch the kids, um, all ages, like I said, some were like 10 years old. And they all liked to dance fast, so um, they thought they were doing the polka, which they really weren't. But So we speeded up a lot of the songs so they could do the polka their way. <laughs> I think it defies imagination to picture anyone dancing to the shags because the beat is so eccentric. But I can picture it. We mocked their music a little bit because it was different. It was not typical, you know, frankly, not very harmonized. <laughs> Watch the kids moves up on stage, see the kids having so much fun, you know. Sometimes you might get a little jealous of it because we're up there and they're down there. But really, almost every time they performed, Austin would tell them what they were doing wrong and rarely praise them and would give them notes on each song, what they were doing wrong, how they had to improve their musicianship. There was one song in particular, Philosophy of the World, that he never was satisfied with how they played it. And they would practice over and over again. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what you say. Austin discouraged them from having friends or socializing in any way. Yeah, but we weren't even allowed to date. We were not allowed to have a boyfriend or anything. Probably because if we were dating and, and one of us got married, then we'd have more interest in that than, and lose interest in the band and not want to be a part of it. I think it tells you everything about the Shags that this brief opportunity to be out in the world really ended up meaning something. Helen met a boy at the dances at the town hall. Um, they met, and then they met secretly, like while my father was working. And um, then they got married behind his back. Eloped. And she continued living at home for months, not with her then-husband, because she was so scared to tell her parents. It just gives you an idea of the amount of power that Austin wielded over them. And she was right in being worried, because when she finally told Annie and Austin, Austin blew his lid, got a shotgun, and said he was going to kill the boy. The police got involved and finally got all three parties in one place and the police said to Helen, you pick. You go with one or the other, but we can't have people running around looking to kill their new son-in-law. And she ended up choosing her husband and went off with him. And Austin didn't speak to her for months. And at the time, she was 28 years old. So then he kicked her out of the band. And... Um... She moved to Exeter to be with her husband, and then later on, after he settled down, he invited her back in the band. I'm so happy when you're near, I'm so sad when you're away. 
I think what finally prompted Austin to decide to make a record was the huge success of the Beatles. This was shortly after the Beatles had landed on planet Earth. He saw the Beatles and he thought, my girls are just as good as they are, and I guess we just have to make a record so that we can enjoy the kind of success that they're enjoying. I don't know. I didn't think we knew a whole lot of what we were doing as far as... I, I didn't feel I was educated enough to write music, to play it, yeah, write the lyrics, um, but to write the music, I think I could have had a lot more knowledge before I did all that. We didn't think we were ready, but... No way we thought we were ever ready, but he did, so... He took most of his life savings and took the girls to Boston to a recording studio. Here we go, take seven. The engineer listened to them warm up. He, to his credit, felt that they were wasting their money and recommended to Austin that they come back when they were a little bit more tuned up and learned how to play their instruments. But Austin insisted and and simply wouldn't take no. He explained to the engineer that he didn't want to wait because he wanted to record the girls while they're hot, that this was a hot band and they had to be recorded now while they were really cooking. From what I remember, we had, we had headsets on and we could hear the music and then we'd sing with it, but because they didn't record that, only, us, only we could hear it. Um, and that's how it was recorded. We were nervous. Like I said, we didn't feel like we were ready to to do any recording yet, so um, we were nervous and probably couldn't wait to get out of there. Yeah, that's about it. I, you know, almost felt embarrassed, I think, you know, because we knew we didn't know really know what we were doing. This is Austin writing the album's liner notes. The shags are real, pure, unaffected by outside influences. Their music is different. It is theirs alone. They believe in it, live it. Of all contemporary acts in the world today, perhaps only the shags do what others would like to do, and that is perform only what they believe in, what they feel, not what others think that the shags should feel. The shags love you. They will not change their music or style to meet the whims of a frustrated world. You should appreciate this because you know they are pure. What more can you ask? They are sisters and members of a large family, where mutual respect and love for each other is at an unbelievable high in an atmosphere which has encouraged them to develop their music unaffected by outside influences. They are happy people and love what they are doing. They do it because they love it. You know, if you read this, it tells you everything you need to know about Austin. And in an interesting way, he's making a, a very powerful argument for the music that they're making. And that is, it's outsider art. We aren't paying attention to trends. We're not following conventional music. We don't care what critics think. We're just making our music. It's a pretty powerful statement about being an artist that he either made knowingly or simply unwittingly expresses a really admirable manifesto on making art. This is WBCN in Boston. Uh, it's time now for the WBCN Cat and Dog Report. 
WBCN played a couple of the songs a couple of times on their station, but um, no, very little, very little feedback. As the girls got older, the Shags performed less often. For one thing, in 1973, the Fremont Town supervisors decided that they didn't want to do the concerts at Town Hall anymore. After that, we still practiced, but we didn't really go anywhere. And they were arguably more proficient on their instruments at that point, but still making the kind of music they'd been making before. And that's something that you have to admire. They really didn't suddenly start writing Neil Diamond songs. They were still their own strange, original, unusual music. I close my Finally, on this one day uh, in 1975, they played Philosophy of the World. And for the first and only time, Austin told the girls that they had finally perfected it, that the song sounded great. Later that day, he got into bed for take a rest and had a massive heart attack and died. Yeah, we continued until our father passed away. We all went out and got full-time jobs and eventually got married and started our own families and just started another life. And maybe it was liberating to have Austin gone, but he had a role in their psychology that was quite different from a typical father. He, he was their dad and their disciplinarian and the breadwinner in the family, but he also told them what to care about and how to spend their time. What I found really haunting was that their family home, where all of this had taken place, that really represented who they had been, was sold to someone who then became convinced that the ghost of Austin Wigan was haunting the house, and it bothered him deeply. So... He built a small house further back on the property and donated the main house to the Fremont Fire Department, who used it as a practice house, which they set on fire repeatedly for firemen to practice putting out. What should I do? What should I do? Tell me, tell me what should I do? I went to New Hampshire to meet the, the Wiggins sisters, and the backstory really was not what I was expecting. Was it pure innocence, like folk art, that they just kind of made this odd music and hipsters and music lovers adopted it and said it's incredible, it's so naive and amazing? Were they... How did they feel about the way their music was received? I think the attraction to outsider art is some impulse to be nostalgic about childhood. 
you do feel like you're accessing someone's inner life. Also, some of the people have come up out of an environment that's really negative, and it's in that case a sort of document. And then there's, oh my God, this is so bad that it's funny and it becomes something that I'm really uncomfortable with. So what does it mean to appreciate something created by someone who didn't choose to create it? While there may be lots of outsider music, many people have a, they've been driven to it because they have a natural talent or a drive to write music, something that pours out of them, even if they're not schooled in any way. The Shags were different. They were not the ones who were the masterminds behind their own fate. And in this very conservative, very, very contained environment where they had no freedom, they were making music that sounds absolutely free. That's kind of magical. So I do have a little exhibit down at the, at the museum on the Shags, definitely. I have a couple of their albums and a couple of their CDs and obviously the article that appeared in the New Yorker. And amazingly, with the unique history that happened here, Fremont seems to be known as the, the place of the Shags. They have certainly catapulted in the, uh, the uh, popularity of, of society, I guess, if you want to say it that way. Always likes to roam. My pal's name is Footfoot. I never find him home. That was Susan Orlean of The New Yorker. Her article on the Shags is amazing, and I'll post a link to it on my site, rumblestripvermont.com. This show was produced by Susan, by me, and by Nick White of KCRW. Mix and sound design was by Mike Dodge Weisskopf. The show is part of a series called Lost Notes out of KCRW. It's an anthology of some of the greatest musical stories never truly told, and it's awesome. I'll post a link to the series on my site as well. I got the t-shirts, everybody. Now I just have to figure out how to sell them. I have to find those things to mail them in, you know, some critical and challenging details, but stay tuned. I'll figure it out. I'll be back soon with more shows. Thanks a lot for listening. Thanks for listening.